animals knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Pro Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 514. It's me and Jason today, and we're going to be covering the um, kind of predictive programming that's been built into the science fiction genre since basically its outset. And this differs from older versions that people might equate things with, like Greek mythology is a good example. When we look at Greek mythology, there are lessons typically within the storyline, even though it can seem very fantasy-based or sci-fi-based. There are similes, there are lessons to be learned, there's a lot of metaphor going on, and in other words, Greek myth and things like that had a purpose. Whereas when we get into the sci-fi genre, it's really leading a mind astray, getting a mind to throw out common sense and things that should be acceptable, and it normalizes it. And we're going to go back, way, way back to its beginning. And I didn't look it up, but we have an episode that kind of shows the beginnings of sci-fi and comic books in this country. And it all centered around the same circles that we have talked about so frequently. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a very hot good morning. Yeah, it's getting warm here too, finally. But we've got a a lot of ground to cover here. You did a lot of research on this one. So let's start off by saying that we cannot possibly mention every story that has been written that has some sort of science fiction element to it, especially where it may relate to some sort of artificial life taking place, which a lot of these actually do. We should point out before we get in that the mindset, the social mindset has changed so vastly that people are not old as I am, can't even possibly remember how things like comic books or science fiction itself was viewed. When I was young, that was childish and parents didn't want their children spending too much time with things like comic books. If you recall all the way up into the eighties, it was getting no respect. Blade Runner is an example went up against, what did it go up against Jason? What's the name of the movie? Gandhi. And I think it was to do with costumes and they gave the Academy Award to Gandhi. They were not handing out the respect even then. And since then, Blade Runner has become this, you know, everyone's the greatest, one of the greatest movies ever made. It's commonly accepted. But as recently as the 1980s, that was not the case. And so if, in fact, predictive programming is a major reason for this genre, it's working. But anyhow, go ahead. The earliest reference one might suggest for an artificially intelligent being or machine comes from Greek mythology, and it is called Talos. This being was a giant automaton made of bronze to protect Europa in Crete from pirates and invaders. He circled the island's shores three times daily. Talos is usually said to have been made by Hephaestus at the request of Zeus to protect Europa from people who would want to kidnap her. As is often true with the ancient myths, there are other stories with descriptions of Talos and of its eventual fate. So this is a good place for us to open up because we're in fact within the realm of Greek myth. There are lessons to be learned from almost all these stories. As a matter of fact, I like to say that it was a misnomer to begin to call the characters that show up in here gods. I think that a better way to think of these is aspects of nature. So as we start here, this is a perfect spot. Consider the movie Clash of the Titans, or no, not Clash of the Titans. It's the other one. Uh, It's one of the Sinbads or no, it's Jason and the Argonauts, I think, has Talos in it. 
So you can see how the genre is reaching back to latch on to these tales that had a definite learning embedded within them or a message to be told that almost always represented some aspect of nature and they're normalizing it into the genre. But as we get in here, we're going to kind of move away from the roots of what got abrogated. Some will say that Jonathan Swift's 1726 novel Gulliver's Travels could be considered a story that is quite infused with early science fiction concepts. However, Mary Shelley published her novel Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus in 1818, and it is this story that could really be considered the first of its kind. Mary Shelley tells the story of Victor Frankenstein, who engineers a living creature in a monstrous experiment. Although Napoleon had been defeated at Waterloo in 1815, the early 19th century was an era of political upheaval at home and abroad, and many think this book promotes revolutionary ideas. Frankenstein can be seen as a warning against the expansion of science without a moral context. In the deeply religious pre-Victorian age, suggesting a scientist could challenge God by trying to create human life was considered profoundly shocking. So a couple of things. Now, let's consider Hollywood here, the earliest real kind of mainstreaming of the horror genre, which is a version of sci-fi, I would estimate, or akin. Frankenstein was front and center, right? It was those old Hammer films and other ones that may have preceded that. And they start to make their way into Hollywood. And we don't have to question what Hollywood's up to, right? But go back to the 1700s, where we have Jonathan Swift's novel of Gulliver's Travels. Do you suppose that there were people way back then who read this and considered, wow, is there really a place in the world with miniature people? And you can see how common sense would start to depart from the telling of such tales. Shelley is said to have traveled through Europe in 1815, moving along the River Rhine in Germany and stopping in Gernsheim, which is approximately 11 miles away from Frankenstein Castle, which is actually a real place. It is said that an alchemist had engaged in experiments in this castle, possibly one or two centuries earlier. Shelley then journeyed to the region of Geneva, Switzerland, where much of the Frankenstein story would take place. Galvanism and occult ideas were topics of conversation for her companions, particularly for her lover and future husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley. In 1816, Mary, Percy, and Lord Byron are said to have had a competition to see who could write the best horror story. After thinking for days, Shelley is said to have been inspired to write Frankenstein after imagining a scientist who created life and was then horrified by what he had made. Think about, so Jason, I mean, do you kind of agree? We, we talked about this. Is, is this maybe the oldest example of what we could call sci-fi, do you suspect? I could definitely see the argument for it, absolutely. I can see the argument for it too. And look at the legs it had. It's been around ever since. It's held up as, you know, an important book. But look, there are lords and ladies around the center of the creating of this. And again, to, to really echo, I think it's the 1930s when the movie theaters are packing young people in and you're getting your Draculas and what's there, Frankenstein. So this oldest reach we can go back or among the oldest what we might call sci-fi it has legs and it actually launches a whole genre in hollywood and again we know what hollywood is doing with its media but we aren't done with mary shelley yet she also wrote the last man 
which is an apocalyptic, dystopian science fiction novel first published in 1826. This narrative concerns Europe in the late 21st century, a time that has been ravaged by the rise of a bubonic plague pandemic that rapidly sweeps across the entire world, ultimately resulting in the near extinction of the human race. The story includes discussion of the British state as a republic, for which Mary Shelley sat in meetings of the House of Commons to gain insight to the governmental system of the Romantic era. The novel includes many fictive allusions to her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who had drowned in a shipwreck four years before the book's publication, as well as their close friend, Lord Byron, who had died two years previously. The Last Man is one of the first pieces of dystopian fiction published. The book was critically savaged at the time and had remained largely obscure at the time of its publication. It was not until the 1960s that the novel resurfaced for the public. There it is. It was savage, right? This is, there's no respect being granted such ideas, but here's a person sitting in the House of Commons. Uh, We've already been told she hung out with a lord, uh, Byron being that lord. So she's in around the the powers of people who would know things and have insider information. And what does she do? In 1826, she talks about a dystopian future. She nails the century, right? 21st century. And she connects it accurately to a plague. Makes you wonder, is this connected to something that she saw in and around the circles of power? It seems a bit much to think that this was a blind shot at the dartboard and just happened to hit the bullseye. But I think the main tell here is they say flat out, this is savaged and it's not going to gain any respect until when? The 1960s. Let's move forward now to the 1865 novel by Jules Verne, From the Earth to the Moon a direct route in 97 hours, 20 minutes. This book tells the story of the Baltimore Gun Club, a post-American Civil War society of weapons enthusiasts, and their attempts to build an enormous Columbiad space gun and launch three people, the gun club's president, his Philadelphian armor-making rival, and a French poet in a projectile with the goal of a moon landing. Five years later, Verne wrote the sequel that was called around the moon. So let's just call a spade a spade here. Isn't it interesting that some of the earliest sci-fi echoes some one of the biggest hoaxes of the modern era, the moonshot. And by the way, Jason talked about this. What, what is it? The Lumiere brothers. One of their earliest films or the earliest film is a sci-fi shot to the moon. So if we can demonstrate that the moonshot is a hoax, is Jules Verne playing a complicit role here? Uh, we have to ask. These stories have had legs. The, the the genre as a whole was not respected all the way up until, I don't know, well into the 20th century anyhow. Uh, and as I pointed out in the 80s, the Academy Awards wouldn't even give a nod to a picture that was clearly head and shoulders uh, best costume than to go give it to Gandhi, which is just a replica of what you can see any given day in India. It underscores how much society has changed to begin to shape this. But let's ask the question. 1865, already talking about moonshots, and this is pre-echoing one of the biggest hoaxes of the modern era, namely the Apollo moon hoax. Erewhon, or Over the Range, is a novel by English writer Samuel Butler that was first published anonymously in 1872. The novel drew on an earlier article of his from 1863 called 
Darwin Among the Machines, where he raised the question of the evolution of consciousness among self-replicating machines that might supplant humans as the dominant species. The book's story is set in a fictional country that is discovered and explored by the protagonist. The book is a satire on the author's Victorian society at the time of writing. The first few chapters of the novel deal with the discovery of Erewhon, are in fact based on Butler's own experiences in New Zealand, where as a young man, he worked as a sheep farmer on Mesopotamia Station for about four years, from 1860 to 1864, and explored parts of the interior of the South Island and wrote about in his A First Year in Canterbury Settlement from 1863. The novel is one of the first stories to explore ideas of artificial intelligence. This is said to have been influenced by Darwin's recently published On the Origin of Species in 1859, as well as the machines being development out of the Industrial Revolution, the late 18th century to early 19th centuries. Specifically, the book concerns itself in the three-chapter Book of the Machines with the potentially dangerous idea of machine consciousness and self-replicating machines. Many apparently did not take him seriously at the time and thought the idea of artificial intelligent machines as a joke. However, in the preface to the book's second edition, Butler wrote, I regret that reviewers have in some cases been inclined to treat the chapters on machines as an attempt to reduce Mr. Darwin's theory to an absurdity. Nothing could be further from my intention, and few things would be more distasteful to me than any attempt to laugh at Mr. Darwin. So many tells here, Jason. First of all, he publishes this without his name initially. And we know who Darwin is now. Darwin was one of the linchpins that helped launch the dinosaur narrative. Uh, The whole idea of Darwinian evolution was a intent to steer the way we think about the false history we've been handed. And so a hundred years before I'm born in 1863, this man writes a novel on artificial intelligence. How? Just asking the question. I've asked a less impactful question about the book Dune. 1950s, he's writing. 60s, it gets published. How could he possibly have come up with the uh, idea of the Butlerian Jihad? And we know that these people were in and around uh, influential organizations. So I guess we have to ask the question, is he a clever man that came up with a clever idea or is an intentional idea is the beginning of an egregore being inserted into the world mind here? 1863, you're going to write a story about artificial intelligence. It's going to be linked to Darwin. And for those of us who are critical thinkers, we know what Darwin's been used for. It's been used to hide the false history. It's been used to try to lock our minds into a linear way of thinking. First comes one, then comes two, anything but cyclical. It was used to launch the dinosaur narrative. And so here we are. Is it good and proper to ask, is there intent in 1863 behind the insertion of this idea, or is it something else altogether? And one more mention from Jules Verne is definitely in order, with 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas being published in 1870. This book was widely acclaimed on its release and is still considered so today, being regarded as one of the premier adventure novels and one of Verne's greatest works, along with Around the World in 80 Days and Journey to the Center of the Earth. 
What's interesting is when these are written, they seem to be so far ahead of their time, and yet they begin to catch up. And so we're stuck with this idea uh, with regard to the sci-fi genre. Is it intentionally inserting ideas into the consciousness of the world? Is it creating that, I like to call it the egregore, because it's a thought form. And everybody knows that a thought form can be measured and very few people keep in mind that it's real. Once you create thoughts, things happen. As a matter of fact, you could say that the way we think shapes our future. So if we think in this way, and we're getting ideas like this introduced so long ago, are these stories creating the path in front of us, or are they pre-echoing a plan that already exists? Either way, they're looked on derisively. They get no respect, and yet they stand the test of time. And in the modern era, 60s, 70s, 80s, all this starts to become mainstream and respectable to the point where when a movie like Avatar comes out, uh, it's embraced by everybody and clearly could be in, in line to get best picture awards and everything else by the mainstream. We've come a long way vis-a-vis what's acceptable and what should be respectable. But here we are all the way back nearing the end of the 1800s when all these ideas that are not even close to coming to pass are being introduced. In 1888, journalist and writer Edward Bellamy published Looking Backward, 2000 to 1887. It is considered a utopian science fiction novel and pushes the concepts and supposed benefits of a socialist society. According to a 2021 essay in the New York Times, in the 19th century, United States, only Uncle Tom's Cabin sold more copies in its first years than looking backward. It is said to have influenced many intellectuals and appears by title in many socialist writings of the day. Quote, it is one of the few books ever published that created almost immediately on its appearance a political mass movement. So here they are. They're openly admitting the power of media, uh, the power of television. Back before all that, the power of literature. And what are they openly admitting? That there was an agenda. It was a socialist agenda tied to this. And before Jason did this research, I had no idea that it was as popular as it was, nor that a political mass movement was constructed. In other words, whoever came up with these ideas, published it, pushed it forward. If the agenda was to push socialist ideas, they apparently hit it out of the park. But what do we know of media? Now, looking back, the power of media can never be diminished. We know what it does. Whoever controls the news, whoever controls television, whoever controls the movies has one of the most powerful social steering tools in their possession that can be had. And I would suggest that it's been known by those in power all the way back to, I don't know, as long as we've had theater anyhow, which precedes even the writing of what we can call sci-fi here. So here's an open admission that a socialist idea was wrapped into a, I don't know, are we calling it science fiction? I guess utopian science fiction novel, and it gained massive traction. In fact, proving the power of media of this kind. And you will see the socialist thing over and over and over and over again with a lot of these science fiction people. Well, I think it also, you know, the, the ancillary things that we can put together, like what gets published and what becomes popular and what stands the test of time. These are all 
most of which are not just by chance. You know, this is by careful selection. Uh, even now, uh, we, you know, we could do an episode on how does somebody make the New York Times bestseller list. And if we did, we'd have to make the, the joke about Oprah, right? All Oprah had to do to put someone over the top and on every bestsellers list was go on her show and cover a book. And then pretty soon she had a reading club. And so the control of what was going on there is indescribable. If in fact a a thought form is measurable, if in fact the more people you get to share in the similar ideas creates things like egregores and those become independent and influential on their own at some point, now start to look at the power of what Oprah was wielding. And that's just what we see in our era. When we go back all these years into the 1800s, who the hell decided, yep, we're going to publish Frankenstein. Everyone will love this. This is good Christian fare. You know, you can start to put together the intent of the entirety of this genre, which is hard to look at now because it's looked at just that. It's just a genre. It's part of our world. It's as respectable as any other genre. But is it? Is the actual intent? to lead our minds astray. And I would suggest that it is. And I would suggest that it's been used over and over and over to tamp down common sense, get people to accept things they shouldn't accept, and to slowly degrade the, I don't know, thinking morality. Not morality in the sense of morals, but in the sense of what thinking should be. Is this acceptable? Should I be giving this any truck? These kinds of ideas. In 1890, News from Nowhere is published by the artist, designer, and socialist pioneer William Morris. It is considered a classic work that combines utopian socialism and soft science fiction. In the novel, the narrator William Guest falls asleep after returning from a meeting of the Socialist League and awakes to find himself in a future society based on common ownership and democratic control of the means of production. In this society, there is no private property, no big cities, no authority, no monetary system, no marriage or divorce, no courts, no prisons, and no class systems. This agrarian society functions simply because the people find pleasure in nature, and therefore they find pleasure in their work. The novel explores a number of aspects of this society, including its organization and the relationships which it engenders between people. Morris fuses Marxism and the Romance tradition when he presents himself as an enchanted figure in a time and place different from Victorian England. So once again, you see agenda and intent packed into the story. And as maybe a benchmark to back up, what I'm saying about the sci-fi genre or fantasy in general. And I know people will say they're different genres, but what I'm talking about are stories that do not tell any meaningful tale. There's no meaningful learning in them. They are simply things that don't exist that are then put forward for consideration and then over time acceptance. If you look at someone like Charles Fort, if you have not read Charles Fort, um, you should. Now, there's a man after my own heart. Is he always right? Probably not. But what he does do is always defends the common sense that God gave us. In other words, I'm presented with all these things the media is foisting on me, but should I? 
<clears throat> so what he does is he takes them apart logically and he demonstrates over and over and over that if we simply accepted all these things that come at us from media and authority and science books, then basically you could almost say everything we know is wrong. And these are important things to keep in mind because increasingly we find ourselves in a fantasy-based reality and it's been intentionally inserted into what it means to live into modern life. It's intentional. The alchemical processing and initiation of a world mind has been going to town since before the earliest so-called sci-fi writing. And that's why all this matters, because now we are waking up in a world where common sense is a rarity, where moral values are a rarity. And how did we get here? Well, what we're talking about is part of the tools used and implemented to ensure that we got here. Moving up to 1895, H.G. Wells published The Time Machine. The work is generally credited with the popularization of the concept of time travel by using some sort of a vehicle or a device to travel purposely and selectively forward or backward through time. The term time machine, which was coined by Wells, is now almost universally used to refer to such a vehicle or device, and numerous time travel stories would come after. How much work have we done, Jason, to show who Wells is? And I'll let you take it. What do we know of H.G. Wells? And the reason asking that question matters is because here's a book that was published. It's been popular for God knows how long, and it's been held up all the way from 1895 to now, to the point where it's been made into a very popular Hollywood movie more than once. What do we know about Wells, Jason? H.G. Wells was one of those people who uh, was on the outer rings of the inner chattings going on with all things in society. In and around the circles of power. And so we find this over and over. When we look at how God, I can never remember the name of it. Fantastic Tales or whatever that first magazine is in this country is kind of jettisoning off this kind of circle of power and the people who write and publish. As a matter of fact, I increasingly suspect that Herbert is of the same mold. And I have heard that Herbert was mentored. Do you remember the name of the magazine I always grasp for, Jason's Weird Tales or Strange Something? But it's like that first little aimed at young people sci-fi publication that everything comes out of like spokes of a wheel. And it does associate with people like the writer of Dune. But here we have it. This man is around the circles of power and he's putting out these ideas that are going to be accepted, published, become very popular, and then at some point never again leave world consciousness. The time machine begins in Wells' then-present Victorian England and would go on to recount the otherwise anonymous time traveler's journey into the far future. The story is a work of future history and speculative evolution and has been interpreted in modern times as a commentary on the increasing inequality and class divisions of Wells' era, which he projects as giving rise to two separate human species, the fair, childlike Eloi, and the savage Simeon Morlocks, distant descendants of the contemporary upper and lower classes respectively. 
It is believed that Wells' depiction of the Eloi as a race living in plentitude and abandon was inspired by the utopic romance novel News from Nowhere that was published in 1890, though Wells' universe in the novel is notably more savage and brutal. You know, of all the sci-fi that has become world famous and stood the test of time and been done over and over again and made all the reading lists like this book, The Time Machine, uh, the Morlocks have always been fascinating to me because typically when something like Bram Stoker's Dracula gets written, you get a thousand versions of Dracula or vampires, which is what we've seen, but not so much with the Morlocks. It's interesting Um, But what is it about the Morlocks? What was he talking about? What was he comparing it to? And to me, it feels like it's no different than the vampire idea. It just, for some reason, this kind of villainous characterage has not been done over and over and over. And yet it seems to perfectly fit with where we see the world going, the upper circles of power. And how many times have you heard, oh, all the underground military bases and all these things? My point being is this time machine idea has some unique characteristics about it, but clearly it stood the test of time. And by the way, it's difficult to even challenge all this in the way we are because sci-fi and fantasy in these genres are so beloved in our time, but this was not always the case. In a more common sense-based society, Uh, There was no respect, mostly, going to a lot of this. H.G. Wells releases one of the first stories about a conflict between the human race and an extraterrestrial race with his novel The War of the Worlds, published in its full form in 1897 after being serialized in magazines of the time. The novel is the first-person narrative of an unnamed protagonist in Surrey and his younger brother in London as southern England is invaded by Martians and is one of the most commented on works in the science fiction canon. The plot is similar to other works of invasion literature from the same period and has been variously interpreted as a commentary on the theory of evolution, British colonialism, and Victorian-era fears, superstitions, and prejudices. Wells later noted that inspiration for the plot was the catastrophic effect of European colonization on the aboriginal Tasmanians. Some historians have argued that Wells wrote the book to encourage his readership to question the morality of imperialism. At the time of publication, it was classified as a scientific romance, like Wells' earlier novel, The Time Machine. This story would be heavily influential on later works, and would see itself retold in numerous reinterpretations in various media. Let me take a different stab at this. I remember seeing this movie, the older version, when I was young. And at the end of it, what happens? Well, there's a plague, the germs, you know, the COVID narrative. That's what wipes out the Martians in the end. Our weapons are not powerful enough to even start to contend with them. But guess what? We have this hidden power. It's germs and viruses. And I would ask, without tales like this, how successful would the COVID narrative have been? And by the way, let's even take it further. Did this influence the way we think about Mars? If I am correct, you can't just leave here and go put a boot on Mars. From our point of view, from my point of view, uh, it would be best described as a luminary. 
But what does a very popular tale like this that has been picked up by Hollywood, I don't even know how many times, and clearly part of the world consciousness, everyone is aware of it. This has been referenced more times than we could possibly run down. What has it done to the way we think about what Mars is and what space is? You know, if you start to look at what's being normalized here, let's ask the question. Without stories like this, would the COVID narrative been so successful? And I think we have to ask these questions. H.G. Wells was trained as a science teacher during the latter half of the 1880s. One of his teachers was Thomas Henry Huxley, who was a major advocate of Darwinism and was also the grandfather of Julian and Aldous Huxley. Wells later taught science, and his first book was a biology textbook. Much of his work is notable for making contemporary ideas of science and technology easily understandable. H.G. Wells was what one could call a globalist, and later in life would publish the nonfiction book The New World Order in January of 1940. In The New World Order, Wells proposed a framework of international functionalism that could guide the world towards achieving world peace. To achieve these ends, Wells asserted that a socialist and scientifically planned world government would need to be formed to defend human rights. Well, there it is, folks. H.G. Wells published a book called The New World Order. Now, what do we know about the people who are writing these types of things? Well, he's around Huxley. How much work have we done around Aldous Huxley and all the shenanigans that have been done there? Uh, what does that tell us about Darwinism? How does that relate to the dinosaur narrative? How does that relate to how we think about Mars, how we think about time, how everything is linear, nothing is cyclical? By the way, there are germs. Clearly, there are germs. We put it in our story here because that's what's going to kill the Martians. It goes on and on and on. But here it is in black and white, the new world order in 19 forward. In 19 forward, he is already putting forward the idea that clearly we have to have a one world government of some kind to defend the rights of human beings. What I'm saying here is the entirety of this genre was put together a forethought. It was known the power of media as long as there has been a theater that people have gone to. That's how long the power of acting and narrative and stories has been known. By the time the first television came along, they knew in spades what they had in their power. They knew it when the first radio came along. And by the time we're getting up into literature that's going to go out into the world, they already know. And how do we know who these people are? Because they're in and around the circles of power. Go back and look at our episodes on Huxley. Go back and look at all this and Julian specifically, this is all mindset framing. This is all initiation. This is all shaping how we think about things. And from my point of view, it was done with planning and a forethought. And the end game is in the name of this book attributed to Wells, The New World Order. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz is published in 1900 by author L. Frank Baum. It is the first novel in the Oz series of books. 
The story is that of a Kansas farm girl named Dorothy, who ends up in the magical land of Oz after she and her pet dog Toto are swept away from their home by a cyclone. Upon her arrival in the magical world of Oz, she learns she cannot return home until she has destroyed the Wicked Witch of the West. The story of the novel has some pretty notable differences from the beloved movie, but the overall storyline is the same. The story features a fully sentient and intelligent machine being in the Tin Man, but the Scarecrow could also be considered a similar such being, although he is made of natural substances. Even the cowardly lion is anthropomorphized from being an animal to being a fully intelligent, human-like individual. What most probably do not know about the character of the Tin Man is that his real name was Nick Chopper, who was a real flesh-and-blood human being. However, he was not turned into a machine, but rather had his flesh body replaced by a metal one. Far from missing his original existence, the Tin Woodman is proud, perhaps too proud, of his untiring tin body. This is quite an interesting early transhumanist concept woven into the story. In subsequent years, there would end up being 13 sequel books to the original, with many of them having similar unusual beings inhabiting their pages. Let's come at this from a different way. How important is The Wizard of Oz to the world mind? Well, let's look at how it came to be. There is one particular year in Hollywood that is touted as the golden age of all golden ages, that 1939 produced the most important and memorable and all these things. Well, that's the year that Wizard of Oz happened. And by the way, the first time anyone ever saw color in a theater, we are told, is in The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy comes out of the world that we are living in through a tornado, ends up in Oz, opens that door, and you can only imagine what must have been going through the heads of those people who for the first time saw Technicolor. It must have been mind-boggling. As we look at all that went into the release of this, the things that I notice are, do you ever take time to see how good the makeup is in The Wizard of Oz? It's fantastic. I can show you cinema in the 80s that is laughable special effects and makeup compared to The Wizard of Oz in 1939. And the only reason I'm making the point is because these outlets for world media are known to be important in shaping what the world mind accepts and what it doesn't. And The Wizard of Oz is at the center of importance. And by the way, it was done so well that I don't, I think you would be hard pressed to find a person, even who detests mainstream things, that isn't going to show a little respect because of what they nostalgically feel for this movie when they saw it as a kid. And it never seems to diminish, it plays on and on and on. But I'm just saying, Jason, have you ever noticed the quality of the makeup job? in 1939 and then compared it to things we were shown later, which are clearly falling very short of the mark. Oh, very much so. And I think a lot of that might be attributed to the fact that stage work was still very much a big thing then. And that was being transferred over to the burgeoning film industry. To me, it feels like they're getting a little too close to how the secret elements of governance uh, do things. And I think they purposely back off what's possible in the real world. I once saw this thing. I think it was MGM. I've only seen it once. And they went through the MGM back studio. It was a black and white. And they showed 
that they had made a rubber or a latex mask on almost anyone who had ever acted, not just the A-list players, but everyone. And it was eye-opening because the quality and the level at which they did it and what I had seen in The Wizard of Oz showing me what could be done with masks of that kind began to wake me up to what we were being shown to the 60s tongue-in-cheek Mission Impossible. The real world is actually swapping people out, which we later come to know is undeniable with people like Paul McCartney. If they're doing it with McCartney, why wouldn't we instantly suspect that people who are actually way more important than McCartney are getting such treatment like popes or kings or presidents? And you know damn well it's got to be going on. I'm just saying. And where does all this originate? On the stage. So you can see the connection between what we act like is just entertainment and how the world actually operates. At the beginning of the 20th century, old H.G. Wells is at it again. The First Men in the Moon is a scientific romance story originally serialized in The Strand magazine from November 1900 to June 1901 and published in hardcover in 1901, who called it one of his fantastic stories. The novel tells the story of a journey to the moon undertaken by the two protagonists, a business narrator, Mr. Bedford, and an eccentric scientist, Mr. Cavour. Bedford and Cavour discover that the moon is inhabited by a sophisticated extraterrestrial civilization of insect-like creatures they call selenites. The inspiration seems to have come from the famous 1870 book by Jules Verne, From the Earth to the Moon, and the opera by Jacques Offenbach from 1875. In that opera, the word selenites is used for the first time for moon inhabitants. This is a reference to the Greek goddess of the moon, Selene. Luna was the Roman counterpart. So it's the abrogation, because when you go to the Greek ideas, when they're talking about Selene, there's usually a lesson about the aspects of nature. This is not that. And yet they're using that egregore. They're using that mental reference that is in the world mind. But let's ask the simple question here. Is this written to further what's going to happen in the 60s with JFK and we're taking a man to the moon? Or is it the other way around? Is it those people who are going to portray the hoax in the 60s looking back and leveraging off these? And to me, I know what I think is true. I think that this is put out there to proceed these ideas that could possibly come to pass later. And if we look at how early on the moon, we're going to the moon is inserted. It's like one of the first movies ever shot by the Lumiers. It is among the first things written in the sci-fi genre. So from my point of view, I suspect that these are directed ideas coming from the circles of power with a game plan that could go this way in the future. That's what I suspect is correct. But even if I'm wrong, I don't think you can really deny by the time you get up to the 60s and JFK that they are absolutely leveraging off these ideas. And I can kind of prove that. After all, we got a movie called 2001, didn't we? When did it come out? Right before we were going to be asked to believe that men had walked on the moon. That movie was priming what we were to think about, how we were to think about it, and what we were to accept as was possible. How was it delivered? It was delivered in a story. Also in 1901, The Purple Cloud is published as an apocalyptic last man novel by the British writer M.P. Scheele. 
There seems to be a bit of a theme with this sort of concept. H.G. Wells lauded the Purple Cloud as brilliant, and H.P. Lovecraft later praised the novel as exemplary weird fiction, delivered with a skill in artistry falling little short of actual majesty. The story is about Adam Jeffson, a man on a polar expedition who discovers a mysterious and deathly purple cloud. In the wake of the massive global deaths brought by the purple cloud, Jeffson becomes ruler of the world and builds a huge palace to his glory. He meets a young woman, and the two become the heirs to the future of humanity. The novel formed the basis for the 1959 American film The World, The Flesh, and The Devil. Well, I can't offer much here because I have not read the book, nor have I seen the 1959 film. So let's go ahead and move forward. But I mean, the same themes are here, right? They're talking about a place no one can go to either of the supposed Arctic circles, ant or otherwise. And then the whole death cloud idea and the whole one person rules it all idea. And for the last point for our one, The Machine Stops is a science fiction short story by E.M. Forster. After initial publication in the Oxford and Cambridge Review in November of 1909, the story was republished in Forster's The Eternal Moment and Other Stories in 1928. After being voted one of the best novellas up to 1965, it was included that same year in the populist anthology Modern Short Stories. In 1973, it was also included in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, Volume 2. The story, set in a world where humanity lives underground and relies on a giant machine to provide its needs, predicted technologies similar to instant messaging and the internet. The story describes a world in which most of the human population has lost the ability to live on the surface of the Earth. Each individual now lives in isolation, below ground, in a standard room, with all bodily and spiritual needs met by the omnipotent global machine. Travel is permitted, but is unpopular and rarely necessary. Communication is made via a kind of instant messaging video conferencing machine with which people conduct their only activity, the sharing of ideas and what passes for knowledge. So we have a conundrum here, you know, did the things get invented later because these ideas were inserted into the world mind or is it the other way around? Was somebody aware of something and so they introduced it to foster the road that we're about to go on? And I don't think there's any easy way to ever answer that, though what I know of the powerful places in this world is they are dark and they are all in for themselves. That's what I know about the controlling mechanisms of this world. And since about 2020, that's not really hidden anymore. They don't seem to give a damn that what they're doing is offensive and unacceptable. They do it in your face. When we begin to ask the question of how these things come to be and how they are so often in and around the circles of power, are we to accept that it was just clever stories put down or is it something else? For me, it's something else. And this is not going to be 100% of the time. Were there people who fell in love with the genre and decided they would write something? Heck yes. Of course, of course, that has to be true. But at the same time, are there people with an agenda who latch on to the genre and use it to put forward things that would be completely unacceptable in other, in any other delivery method? I've got this idea about fascism 
that no matter how I package it, man, people are not going to accept this. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create a clever sci-fi world that doesn't exist with clever names that are nobody, that have never existed. And I'm going to insert these ideas under the guise of fiction. And that's where I see the danger in what's happened here. It has normalized things that should not have been normalized. It has pre-echoed things that we should have never believed in. The moon landing is a primary example. I mean, what would you add, Jason? So many of these people go back to the very same circles. Like if we looked at every episode we ever did, I don't think we could come up with a person uh, who changed the world more, obviously, than Bernays. Do you? Well, he's definitely one of the top ones if you want to have a debate about it. But there's two things in looking all this stuff up that I came across that I didn't know about. One was just how much science fiction was being put out there so early on in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century. And two, how many of these authors were completely hung up on socialism? Right, right. Now, there's the agenda. There, the, these when you start to look at the underlying agendas that are masked off and hidden by these fantastic tales and these places that you can only imagine because they don't really exist, there's a subconscious effect. And as an example, in the moon versions of these sci-fi things, whether we want to admit it or not, it inserts the idea that the moon is rock and dirt and that if we can just go high enough, we can jump off and put our boots on it. It just does that. It's what it's doing. Now, if that is incorrect, then you can see the injustice that has been done. And I'm just saying that there was a time, I suspect, back in the day when fiction was never going to get the same respect because that was a more childish idea to a serious society. And that's where I stand on this whole thing. And I think that so much of the storytelling that we are covering here was used to initiate and shape the world mind, prepping it up for what we are on the cusp of now. Is there anything else you want to add to hour one, Jason? So once you get into the 20th century, as you're going to see in hour two, this stuff takes off like crazy. And even though a lot of it is still looked down upon, uh, perhaps by the more educated people in society, it doesn't matter. It takes hold, the roots are strong, and those trees just keep growing and growing and growing. It's like anything else in the world. And you can use drugs as the example. I just do some drugs to feel good. And I occasionally party in social situations. And everybody knows where a huge part of that story goes for a lot of people. The use continues, continues. Pretty soon there's an addiction. Pretty soon it's a nasty mess. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Used to be a genre that got no respect all the way up to the 80s. They were not giving the genre respect, even in Hollywood. One of the main purveyors was not giving it respect, but now it's different. It's been normalized. Not only has it been normalized, it's beloved. It's like the Simpsons. For the life of me, I will never comprehend how the Simpsons could be beloved to anyone. It is lowbrow gutter trash that portrays people as throwaway. The jokes that are made are mind-lowering most of them. And yet, what do we have? We have statements like, oh, well, Apu can't be racist because it was given to us on the beloved Simpsons. So you see how this works. And 
what do you think's going on with gender right now? It's the same thing. Companies giving up their ability to have stock of value and otherwise, or make money, don't even give a damn because they're busy normalizing the dropping of morality. And why are they doing it? They're doing it for the same reason, from my point of view, that we got the majority of these stories, because there is an end goal. New world order is one way we might describe it so that the most people will describe what that goal is, the takeover of everything everywhere. And before I close, I'll ask a simple question. Most of us have a problem with the world history we were handed. We don't accept that it's correct or accurate in almost any way. What if there are people who do know an accurate world history? What if what they know of the world that we do not know from centuries gone by helped them to comprehend what would be possible in the future? And I'm just putting it out there. But with that, we're going to bring hour one of episode 514 to a close. We're going to prep up, get ready, come back for hour two. We're going to open up with The Princess on Mars, which was actually a movie called John Carter, which was a well-made movie that didn't do well because of marketing, we were told. And I think there's a reason for that. But hour one is free to everybody at pro777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. They have access to all the forums, the comments under every episode, and the two-hour film, Shoot the Moon, that covers all my scope work. But with that, I'd like to wish each and every one of you a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era as we prep up for hour two. There it is, man. Cheers.
kind of beast of knowing. <laughs>